Hello and welcome to the Dogwood Podcast. My name is Lisa Sammartino and I'm coming to your earbuds from Dogwood's Burnaby office for the last time. That's right, we will no longer be recording this podcast or doing any other work, really, above the car wash in Burnaby. We're moving into a real office in Vancouver. Uh, So that means this is the last podcast episode where you will have to strain your ears to hear our voices over the constant hum of the car wash. I am so excited to bring you an extra special episode of the podcast this month. This past week, we hosted a Facebook Live Q&A about the Trans Mountain Pipeline and Tanker Project. You probably know the recent drama. The federal government has agreed to buy the project from Kinder Morgan with $4.5 billion taxpayer dollars. Yes, that's right. You and I are funding this purchase. We guessed there would be some confusion about this deal and all the other things that have happened during this roller coaster of a year so far. So we decided to put together a Facebook Live Q&A to answer all your questions. Our communications coordinator, Noel Amir, our No Tankers campaigner, Sophie Harrison, and one of our provincial organizers, Mike Soran, took questions from the Facebook audience. Here is their conversation. Do we want to get started yeah, soon? I think, yeah, we've got a really yeah. good crowd here. Are you guys ready? Should we go? Yeah. We got if a I thumbs get, up from our producer. <laughs> okay. All right. We will start. Hi, everybody. My name is Noel Amir, and I am a communications coordinator here at Dogwood. And we wanted to do our first ever Facebook Live because following the government's announcement about the Trans Mountain Pipeline, a lot of us were asking, what is going on? And our democracy campaigner, Lisa Sammartino, had this brilliant idea and said, to heck with it, we'll do it live. So here we are. Um, tonight, I'm joined by two wonderful people that I will be asking questions and that your questions will be brought to them as well. Would you like to introduce yourselves? Yeah, uh, I'm Mike Soron. I'm a provincial organizer. And I'm Sophie Harrison. I'm pipeline and tankers campaigner here at Dogwood. Yeah, and uh, I would like to begin by acknowledging that our live video here recorded today is on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Salish, uh, sorry, Coast Salish people, um, specifically here at our Burnaby office. And we um, know that a lot of people are joining this conversation from across the province and we uh, even the country. So we want to invite everybody to reflect upon the indigenous land that they um, reside or are on today. Um, Next up, I'm going to go start by saying that tonight we are generally fielding questions about the Trans Mountain Pipeline, both the um, pipeline itself and the expansion. Uh, We sent out a call to support to submit their questions. So thank you very much for everybody who's done that so far. If you have any questions and you haven't had the chance to do so uh, previously, please feel free to do so in the comment section here. Um, And before we kick off the question and answer section of tonight, I want to prime us a little bit on the history of the original Trans Mountain Pipeline built in 1953. So what better way to do that than with a pop quiz. Pop quiz? Ah! Mike and Sophie, are you guys ready for a pop quiz? I don't know. I we can... were warned there would be a yeah. quiz, but we don't know what it's on, so no, we have not studied or prepared. Okay. And I also ask everybody who's watching to join in and respond in the comment section. We would really love to see what your answers are in addition to our wonderful guests here tonight. So with that, I will... First, describe the format very quickly. Three questions. It's going to go Mike, Sophie, and then Mike. And in that meantime, you guys can all jump on in. So let's go. Ready, Mike? Ready. Ready to go. All right. What political party was in office over the course of the initial inception, construction, and commission of the Trans Mountain Pipeline? Oh, that would have been the Conservative Party. What do you guys think? Which party do you think was in power when the pipeline was? Oh no, the Liberal Party. It was the Liberal Party. <laughs> it's the Liberal Party. Are you sure? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I want to see what other people are saying. Hmm. Anyone else got a guess? Want to weigh in? Okay. And three, two, one. It was the Liberal Party. Ah. Uh, 
But you got there eventually. Yeah, you yeah. amended your answer. Because well, it, yes. it triggered a constitutional a crisis, right? It was it federally, sorry. Mm -hmm. I should say it was the Liberal Party, Federal Liberal Party. Ron Bruce called it too. Thank Shout you. out to you, Ron. <laughs> All right, second question for Sophie. Uh, the Trans Mountain Pipeline Company was created through what? A, the National Energy Board. B, a special act of parliament, parliamentary, sorry. C, a mandate from the U.S. military. Whoa. A, the National Energy Board. B, a special act of parliamentary, a special parliamentary act. Mm -hmm. C, is... the mandate from the U.S. military. All right. I... Facebook community, want to mm -hmm. give me a hint here? I'm going to guess not A. Ooh, so Rolo's guessing B. B. I think it's B. I'm kind of going to guess C just to be like Ooh, out there. compelled by the U.S. military? Yeah. It's timely. I don't know. The answer Forest is, is with me. B, a special act of <laughs> there you parliamentary. Go. Mm -hmm. Okay, final question, Mike. The Trans Ooh. Mountain Pipeline fell under the jurisdiction of which commission? A, National Defense, Ooh. B, Natural Resources, Ooh. C, Transportation and Infrastructure. Well, I'm going to say Transportation and Infrastructure because uh, it's an interprovincial project. All right. I will give folks a second to chime in. What do you think it is? A, National Defense, B, Natural Resources, or C, Transportation Commission? A, B, or C? All right, Catherine, you will be surprised because the answer is actually C. Mm -hmm. It was a treated as a transportation infrastructure project. Mm -hmm. All right. Thank Ooh. you guys so much. Hopefully, uh, harder than I was expecting. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully, everybody learned something interesting today, and, and that's just the beginning of our Q&A. Um, for those of you who are just joining in, and I think there are some of you, just a reminder that I am Noelle Mir, Communications Coordinator here at Dogwood. I am joined by Provincial Organizer Mike Soran and No Tankers Campaigner Sophie Harrison. And we are taking your questions on the Trans Mountain Pipeline. And without further ado, our question and answer will begin. So back in April, Sophie Kinder Morgan uh, announced that they would walk away from the Trans Mountain Pipeline if the government didn't provide some 100% guarantee or reassurance that it would be built. And then in late May, um, Morneau held an emergency cabinet meeting to mm -hmm. announce that um, by July 22nd, if nobody came forward to purchase a pipeline, the, the federal government would essentially buy the existing pipeline infrastructure for $4.5 billion. Yes. What has changed since that announcement? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, for me, um, the, the, my favorite way of thinking through it is that um, nothing has changed and everything has changed. So the nothing has changed. The project that is being proposed remains the same. And that means that all the people that are opposed to it going forward um, have continued to speak out and stand strong in their resolve. So we're talking all the First Nations who have not granted consent for this to go through their territory, uh, many of whom are before the courts challenging um, the Trudeau government's approval as unlawful. Um, you got the BC government elected by uh, the people of British Columbia um, that's very concerned about the impacts of an oil spill on jobs, on health and safety, on our waterways. Um, of course, you have people protesting um, and demonstrating, and we haven't seen that change since the federal government's announcement. I don't, don't expect we will see it change as we go into the summer. Um, so from that perspective, nothing has changed. The other perspective, um, it's a pretty massive transformation. You know, when we set out, um, when I first learned about the Kinder Morgan's oil tanker expansion proposal, the thing we had to do was get this Texas company to decide they didn't want to build it. And we did that thing. Um, so I think what we've, what has massively changed is that the company that used to be the biggest proponent of this project has decided it's too risky. Uh, they don't want to go forward with it anymore. It was already, you know, a questionable business case. You add on all the risk of, you know, people who are opposed. Um, and so now they don't want it. And I think similarly, like, it's been pretty horrifying to learn that our federal government is so hell-bent on pushing forward their pet pipeline project, they're willing to invest billions of taxpayer dollars in it. Um, I think we've been asking all along how far they'd be willing to go to force this project through BC and through communities that don't get permission. And I think that's been a massive change for me is realizing just how determined these guys are to push this thing through. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think since the announcement as well, we've had a number of local liberal MPs uh, respond to mm -hmm. constituents, to us, uh, to our canvassing in their ridings. 
Um, and they've needed to defend essentially a position that's the opposite of what many of them campaigned on. Mm -hmm. um, people like Terry Beach uh, did a lot of work trying to represent the interests of constituents here in this community and, and was largely not uh, listened to by the government. So people are asking him and people like Hedy Fry and Joyce Murray and Pam Goldsmith-Jones and other liberal MPs uh, to explain themselves. And so since then, uh, many of them have had statements that come out um, or have spoken about their longstanding personal opposition to the pipeline, despite um, being with a party that's now buying it for taxpayers. Uh, so we're learning more about some of the fissures and divisions that exist within the Liberal Party here in BC over this decision. Mm -hmm. um, my next question is, Morneau says that the pipeline is in the national interest and an investment in our future. And I'm wondering, is this really the case? Is this true? And um, if not, what could be the underlying, re underlying reasons for supporting this pipeline? Yeah, we hear these arguments constantly in the national press and, um, you know, from Alberta and from Ottawa. Uh, I think the question we need to ask when we hear this is which future, which type of future are we talking about? Mm -hmm. Whose interest is, uh, are we actually talking about? So we're a big country. We have lots of different interests. We have lots of different people. Um, is this pipeline in our interest? Well, it depends on what kind of future we want. Mm -hmm. And most of the world has well, actually all of the world, other than the United States, has committed to take action on climate change. The Paris Agreement is uh, a meaningful, meaningful action by the international community to do this. It's not enough, but it's there. And we're starting to see action from countries all around the world. Portugal, Scotland, uh, Costa Rica, places like India, uh, even US states are making huge efforts into developing a renewable economy, uh, getting off of the internal combustion engine and introducing electric vehicles, uh, reducing uh, air travel by building high-speed rail and other uh, rapid transit options for communities and intercity uh, regions. That is the type of future that I want. And so the question then is, is this project and is spending four and a half billion or $20 billion uh, on investment in our future, the type of future I want? And is it in my interest? Now, I don't think it is. Uh, there are some economists out there, um, certainly uh, oil and gas lobbyists who are making the case that it is in the nation's interest. But I strongly, strongly believe that it is not. And if you agree with me and you think that there is a different future that Canada can have than one of fossil fuel dependence, we need to get out there and organize and make that happen. Because as we're learning um, from Europe and the United States and everywhere, these things don't happen automatically. They happen because people show up and uh, demand them. And so the underlying reason for this is, uh, I mean, let's just say it, big money, oligarchy, the status quo. Um, there is a pernicious uh, interest in keeping the status quo as it is and not uh, moving towards the clean energy, renewable, decentralized power future that we need. That is uh, big money, that is deep state, uh, that is a powerful industry that we need to cooperate and work together to confront because they're meeting every day with um, the PMO, with ministers, with your local MP. Um, and as we just saw, they're having secret backroom negotiations about buying uh, a pipeline from a US company. So whose interest is this in? I don't know, but certainly not ordinary Canadians. Well, coming off of that, that leads me to my next question is, and it is, how does the government expect to finance this um, both the buying and the expansion of the buyout of the existing infrastructure and then the expansion. Yeah, I mean, I can jump in on that first. I think the first important note, um, if you're reading the details, which I imagine a lot of the folks on this Facebook Live are, um, you probably know this, but I think a lot of our fellow Canadians um, haven't picked up on this fact. And that's that the $4.5 billion is just the money that they're using to buy the existing pipeline infrastructure. So we're talking a 65-year-old, um, pipeline that literally spilled like two weeks ago. Um, so that's $4.5 billion. Um, then we're talking about the actual cost that it would be to build a whole new larger pipeline, um, an expanded tank farm, an expanded oil tanker terminal. Uh, Kinder Morgan's latest estimates there were $7.4 billion, but they've refused to update those costs for more than a year now because they keep going up so quickly they can't keep track. Um, so we're talking about a very costly project. Um, at this point, the federal government is saying that they're looking for more buyers. They're trying to find another pipeline company stupid enough to pick up the project that Kinder Morgan's walked away from. 
Um, but so far, um, from what we're seeing publicly, most of the companies that are being asked aren't interested. This is something that the private sector is increasingly seeing does not make sense. Um, so at this point, what the federal government is proposing is to basically put taxpayers on, a, on the hook for a project that private industry no longer wants. So a lot of the narrative on the pro-pipeline side has sort of framed BC as this entity, the, the BC NDP government specifically, as this entity that has sort of stalled the pipeline's process moving forward when in fact there are two things I think that are important to highlight. One, um, it's that the BC government has been compliant in every step of the permitting process. They haven't held that up in any way. Um, and another thing, I think they're also underestimating the role or choosing to ignore the role of grassroots and indigenous groups voicing their opposition and making this project un like unviable. Um, so with that said, um, I'm wondering what legal tools might BC have that would actually impede the pipeline project going forward? Um, I can take first stab at that. Um, yeah, I really like what you said, Noel, about how um, this is about so many more people than just the BC government that's opposing this. But I also think um, it's an intentional effort of the federal government and all of those entities that are trying to weaken the BC government's resolve is to frame them as isolated when it was actually British Columbians that elected them, right? An overwhelming majority of British Columbians voted for um, local representatives that were opposed to this oil tanker project going forward. Um, so, so far what we've seen the BC government do um, is express its concerns about oil spills um, and most recently propose uh, new changes to the Environmental Management Act um, that would allow them to regulate and restrict um, shipments, new shipments of diluted bitumen. So either through pipelines like the Trans Mountain expansion or by oil by rail um, and basically say, we don't want more of this until science can show us that we can clean it up if it spills. Um, and there are still ongoing scientific gaps. So pretty reasonable proposal, I think. Um, so that's what the BC government's going forward with. I think what we should be looking for as British Columbians to make sure they're keeping that promise is um, when their reference case comes back, they've put it before the courts to prove their jurisdiction. When they've done that, making sure that they actually enact those regulations to protect our communities from new diluted bitumen shipments. Um, so I think that's a huge thing that we'll be looking for going forward. Um, but I also think when we're talking about, as you mentioned, like the risks to this project, it's way more than just BC. It's the First Nations that have never ceded title to these lands. Um, and you also have the BC government intervening in support of those nations in federal court. Um, and we're still waiting for verdicts there. So on those six First Nations federal court challenges um, against the Trudeau government's approval. Well, and not to get into it too much today, but mm -hmm. there's also the challenge from Washington State now. Mm -hmm. There's the interests of people who live in Washington State who are speaking up about the impacts in their community. Mm -hmm. You know, that is a, a sort of a local question down there, but it's not just Canadians who are concerned about the impact. This is a, this affects the whole marine ecosystem. This affects the whole regional economy. Obviously, if there's a major spill here, it would affect uh, tourism and the broader economy. Uh, throughout BC and Washington. And when we talk about the pipeline infrastructure that Canadian government is planning to buy, that includes pipelines into Washington. Uh, so I think we'll be expecting folks down there to be speaking out more and more going Indeed. forward. Yeah. Good. No, please. Uh, go. Oh, move move yeah. us along. Move us along. New question. Yeah. Mike and yeah. I can get into a rabbit hole very quickly. So we're just talking about the state level, but I want to come down to the individual level. And I, as an individual, I want to do something about this. Um, I'm really motivated and I want to sort of voice my opposition or take action. What sort of opportunities do I have? And I would like to pose that question to Mike. Yeah, well, this is, uh, I mean, this is the crux of what Dogwood does. And what makes us different from a think tank or just a pure campaigning organization mm -hmm. is we do on the ground organizing. Um, the truth is this won't happen automatically. And our opponents, the people who prefer the status quo, the people who plan on extracting tar sands and fossil fuels for a century or more, uh, expect us to be lazy and do nothing. They expect us to sit around and watch this happen. And I think the, the threat, the real threat that we have is that we organize, we talk to our neighbors, we talk to our elected officials. That is what's actually threatening to them. And we know it works because we have a government now that is opposed to the Kinder Morgan pipeline. And, you know, about this time last year, last May, we were on the phones, we were knocking doors, we were out in the streets uh, talking to people to make sure that every party um, 
was hearing from us. Candidates of every party were hearing from us. And that's the message that we're going to bring to the 2018 municipal election, the 2019 election. Uh, we're going to have conversations with municipal, provincial, federal elected officials, with candidates. Uh, we're going to meet our neighbors out at festivals, outdoors. We're going to host events. We're going to do tours to talk to people about some of the more complicated um, parts of this. Because this is what democracy is all about. We are, especially with everything that's going on in the world right now, with the rise of authoritarianism in the United States, um, threats in Europe and the United Kingdom, we are actually really uh, lucky, as, as angry as I am sometimes at my provincial government or my federal government, we're actually very lucky to live in a relatively stable and functioning democracy. But it's up to us to make the most of that and take advantage of it. Um, and so that's why I feel so grateful uh, to be able to do this for a job, which is to organize politically, to get people out, to make the changes that we need to do. There is uh, a ton of ways to get involved with doing it. Lisa shared some, or, or I imagine Lisa shared a link in the Facebook chat with you. Um, we've got a lot of stuff coming up. We'd love to see you. This is a great way to meet people who share your values um, and want to build the future that you want to see too. Yeah, I'm wondering what everybody out there that's watching uh, this live Q&A, uh, what actions have you taken to um, oppose the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion project? Um, please enter your comments down below. Um, and if you're just tuning in, hi, I'm Noel. I'm communications coordinator here at Dogwood, and I'm here with Mike and Sophie, and we are doing a Q&A on the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Thank you so much for joining us and for submitting your questions. Um, as always, please feel free if you have any questions to enter them in the uh, chat, bo chat box below. Um, I'm going to move on and talk about um, a recent APTN. Um, APTN? Yeah, APTN article about a family in uh, Merritt, BC, whose property has basically been polluted by the Trans Mountain Pipeline since the 1960s, but they didn't know about this until 2014, and they have really struggled to hold anybody accountable to clean this oil spill up up that's been leaking for now decades uh, in the place that not only where they live, but they extract their drinking water from. Um, and so I guess my question to you, Sophie, is um, if this sale of the pipeline goes through to the federal government, um, what does that mean for accountability and who is responsible for cleaning up spills like this? Yeah, I think that's the question we should all be asking um, all of our elected officials, right? Because here in Canada, we at least ostensibly, it doesn't always work, but in theory, we have this principle that polluter pays. Um, so the companies, usually oil shippers, pipelines, uh, people who own and operate oil tankers, um, if they do harm, they have to cover the cleanup costs and they should compensate the communities that they do that harm to. Um, what we have now is the federal government proposing to buy a pipeline. Um, so even if... Um, as I believe firmly will happen, even if this pipeline and tanker project never gets built, that's going to put taxpayers on the hook for um, any spills or accidents. Um, and when we're talking about the existing pipeline, um, it's spilled 83 times since the NEB made them start keeping records. So that's an average of well over a spill a year. Um, and so you have situations like this where... Um, you know, right now this 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 family has you know been farming this land that has been polluted by oil. Um, we like that will continue to happen. So the spill that happened just two weeks ago, um, that's on Kinder Morgan's watch. It'll still be on Kinder Morgan's watch until this transfer continues. But depending on when the next pipeline spill is, that'll be our tax dollars at work. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's something when we talk about risks of pipeline spills, risks of tanker accidents. Um, yeah, that we should all be continuing to ask ask our elected officials about why they're putting us on the hook, not only putting our communities at risk, but putting us on the hook for those cleanup costs. Yeah, I think that's what's so upsetting to me about elements of this, uh, of this deal, this buyout of the federal government, is it means actually that the, the federal government will be building infrastructure that endangers our community. I think particularly of the tank farm, mm -hmm. and the fact that the Burnaby Fire Department and the city of Burnaby is frankly said they are not prepared to deal with an emergency at that mm -hmm. tank farm. 
um, it's really concerning that now the, the proponent of, of this danger is the federal government. And uh, I think it really calls into question whether it's appropriate at all for them to be doing this type of work, especially when they're also the regulator. Right, like I was worried enough about things like the Burnaby Mountain Tank Farm when Kinder Morgan was building it and was being regulated by by the federal government. Now they're regulating themselves, and I'm a little worried about what that looks like if they proceed with the expansion um, later in August. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So continuing on this conversation of responsibility, I'm wondering with the actual expansion, what would the permitting process look like? Does it start over? Does the federal government get a bypass from them completely? Like what, what is the, what, how do we go forward? Mm -hmm. um, well, I think the, the first note in there is that um, I think the federal government negotiated this deal. Obviously we don't know how that happened because it was behind closed doors in Houston boardrooms um, with Kinder Morgan. But uh, part of that deal, their goal was to make sure construction would start this summer. That was their goal. Um, so that's meaning that I'm sure they're finding ways to make sure that all the existing permits transfer over as um, this project could, seems like it could be transferred over to a Crown Corporation. Um, I think another interesting follow-up question, though, is that um, Kinder Morgan is still, like, missing huge numbers of permits. Talking provincially, they haven't applied for huge numbers of permits. When we're talking about some of the federal regulations, um, you saw them stop applying for permits. Um, they don't have a route approved through huge sections of the pipeline route. Some, you know, the sections that are most contested where communities are, you know, this new pipeline would go right over their drinking water aquifer. Um, and in places like Chilliwack, you actually had Kinder Morgan asking to delay that process further. So what we're going to see is the federal government inheriting a project that um, is very delayed due to this company's own challenges. You know, they've never built a pipeline in Canada before. Um, so... I think our expectation should be that just because the federal government is now pushing this pipeline forward, they should still not be able to build without provincial permits or without a route. Um, I think I'm scared to see how far this federal government will go, but I think the expectation we as citizens should be setting for them is that, gosh, they, they should at least be building with permits. You know, Kinder Morgan hasn't always done that, and we should expect that of our federal government. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um I know I was really excited when the federal liberal gov government came into power in 2015, mm -hmm. and I am also opposed to this pipeline. So I'm wondering, Mike, um, does opposing the pipeline mean that I oppose the government? No, <laughs> obviously not. I think it's, it's unfortunate that uh, the fossil fuel economy has been tied up in this idea of Canadian identity to the point that criticizing it or speaking openly about the need to decarbonize our economy and move to a 100% fossil free energy system is seen as being un-Canadian and unpatriotic. It is, uh, I think, a really dangerous creeping trend in our national discourse. I mean, it wasn't a decade ago that Stephen Harper was talking about the need for us to decarbonize and uh, improve our economy. And we had our own sort of Green New Deal under his leadership. Didn't go very well. Um, but the truth is, uh, part of living in a democracy is being able to disagree with people. I think, you know, we've, we've seen really, really unacceptable rhetoric from the premier of Alberta, from the mayor of Calgary, from a lot of, of oil executives and individuals, rhetoric that is actually um, really dangerous and, and needs, to, needs to stop and we need to call it out. Um, but what we can do is have disagreements with people. Um, it's okay to uh, disagree about policy. That is what we're all about. What we need is uh, arguments grounded in fact and truth, not these sort of ad hominem attacks against our premier and against people doing this work. Uh, let's actually talk about what's in the national interest and what the best future is for Canada. One of the things that worries me is that the country is starting to get quite divided around this, that BC is um, really quite strident and Alberta and Saskatchewan um, are standing opposed to Quebec and First Nations and people in Ontario who uh, are really not interested in doubling down on a 19th century fossil economy in the twilight days of this industry when the whole world is committed to dropping this product. So we, um, we think not only is it uh, okay to speak up about the pipeline if you disagree, but I think it's actually like a moral and ethical duty um, if you care about the future and care about good governance. 
Thank you. That makes me feel so much better. <laughs> I appreciate that answer a lot. Be proud. Put a Canadian flag yeah. emoji in your uh, yeah. in your profile, like I did. And pipeline like, owner know, Mike Soron. Pipeline owner Mike Soron. I I am a, a proud Canadian, and I I know that if we stand up um, and make this uh, make our voices heard, we can have a Canada that lines up with our values much more than the one that Trudeau is taking us toward. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Mike. Um, if you're just tuning in, I just want to remind everybody that um, we are doing a Trans Mountain question and answer. I am Noelle Mir, communications coordinator here at Dogwood, and I'm joined by Mike Soren, provincial organizer, and Sophie Harrison, our No Tinkers campaigner and experts of all things pipelines in Canada. Um, moving forward, um, I have a question for you, Mike. Hmm. Yeah. Um, we had Greg write in and he wants to know how we can break through missing rhetoric and slogans and branding that federal liberals keep feeding people um, about this real change in the economy and the environment go together and Trans Mountain being in the national interest and um, what, what can what can we do to get people to start talking, taking a fact and evidence-based approach to evaluating these issues? Well, my friends, the environment and the economy go hand in hand. I am so tired of hearing that line. Um, of course, we're not supposed to repeat their frames, but I think it's okay to ridicule it. I think that's absolutely ridiculous. I mean, of course the economy and the environment go hand in hand. The question is what kind of economy and what kind of environment? Right? Like we can build a really uh, expensive government funded crown corporation pipeline petrostate, um, right? And that would produce a particular type of economy and a particular type of environment. What kind of those things do we want? And I feel like that's missing from the conversation. Um, and that is a real upsetting departure from how liberal MPs campaigned across this country when they were running for office. It was a conversation about ending fossil fuel subsidies. It was a conversation about ending uh, Stephen Harper's muzzling of scientists. It was a conversation about evidence-based policymaking. Uh, these were the things that, that liberal voters who voted for the Liberal Party uh, probably had in mind when they went and voted for them. And I know a number of our supporters are, are liberal voters who are, are really frustrated um, that the things that they cared about aren't being, are not only not present in the, the current government, but are things that are actually like ridiculed and laughed at by the environment minister, by the prime minister. Um, these are emotional times. You know, I think that is very important for elected officials and people who are doing policy making, but for our work in organizing ordinary people and helping ordinary people understand um, why this is an important issue to care about and why they should take some time out of their day to write their MLA or attend an event or make a phone call to an MP um, takes more than facts. It takes a emotional, moral case to be made. And the best person to make that case is someone that they know, um, a friend, a family member, a coworker, someone who can approach them and explain why they uh, are standing up against the Kinder Morgan buyout. And someone who can invite them personally through a personal story, personal experience about um, why their values or their, their ethics drive them um, to speak up and be involved in opposing uh, the buyout or um, speaking up for marine ecosystems or speaking up for indigenous rights. Um, it's that storytelling. So the facts are very important. I think it's, it's worth uh, making sure you're, you're briefed. Uh, but the lesson that we've learned um, in, in organizing and in politics is that the facts are not enough. I mean, it's, it's worth saying that if the facts were enough, uh, we wouldn't be building this pipeline. We would have taken action on climate 25 years ago. Uh, we would be, you know, we'd have fully electric vehicles, renewable cities, everything that we need to be in a great place because we've had those facts for a really, really long time. Um, the American story, the European story, I mean, frankly, the story about Rob Ford in Ontario uh, shows that the facts aren't enough. We really do need to find a way to talk to people. I know I'm going long, but I also want to say, I think it's really important to talk to people who disagree with you as well, who aren't exactly on board with you. You know, I um, love hanging out and talking with Sophie, and we can, like, 
really riff about deep policy issues or, or really get into the weeds about things. But the best, most meaningful type of conversations to have are with those type of people who don't have your everyday life, who don't share your experience, who are like just a little bit outside of your circle, a little bit outside of your uh, social network, because that's how we grow the movement. We have to get beyond, you know, there's a group out there called Beyond the Choir. Um, we need to get beyond that choir, find people who aren't already talking about this. Um, we know on a lot of the issues we campaign on, often there's, you know, 30% of people who are still undecided. Um, and so bringing that conversation to your friends, family, coworkers, uh, that's the really important stuff. And doing it respectfully, really understanding that people are going to be different. They might not use the same words as you. They might not care about all the issues that you care about. But on this particular thing, the buyout, I mean, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation uh, is opposed to this. Um, you know, Jason Kenney's been speaking out against this. Uh, there is a broad spectrum of people uh, politically, different walks of life, different values, different priorities. Uh, who think spending billions of dollars on uh, fossil fuel infrastructure is a really, really bad idea. I love all that. If I can just quickly add on to that question. Um, like, these politicians repeat these talking points for a reason because they think it's a political strategy that works. Uh, Justin Trudeau, Catherine McKenna think that if they say the environment and the economy go hand in hand enough times, uh, come election day, we'll remember that was the thing they said, and then we'll reelect we'll re them. And we'll forget that they lied last time they ran for office. So they told us they'd end fossil fuel subsidies. They promised a new nation-to-nation -nation relationship. Um, they promised real action on climate change. They promised to redo the NEB review. Like, they did not keep their promise, but they think they can beat us with these talking points. And to me, the only way we can fight that is by building a deeper, stronger democracy than they think we're capable of. Like they are trying to win um, with this like phony selfie politics. And I think the way we can be stronger than that is by having enough conversations with our neighbors about our shared values. Um, Lana and Hadia ask, how outrageous is it that the federal government wants to use Canada's pension plan to finance the buyout? Um, my favorite part about asking our amazing community for questions uh, was how many questions, like, weren't actually questions, but were like, I have this thing that I'm really, like, feel really strongly about. And to me, that's one of them where, like, of course it's outrageous. It's so outrageous. I could not agree more, Lana and Hadia. Um, for a number of reasons, right? I think, like, a couple of reasons. One, I would hope the Canadian Pension Plan Investment Board has ethical standards that involves not investing in companies or projects uh, that violate people's rights and that are incompatible with a stable climate for my generation, for generations to come, right? And that's what we're talking about with this type of pipeline. Um, but the second piece is because I would also hope that our pensions are invested in um, stocks and projects that will yield stable long-term returns, right? Like pensions are like, you know, some people are relying on pensions now, I won't need a pension for many more decades, and that fund is supposed to be able to sustain Canadians who have retired long into the future, which means we shouldn't be investing it in a project whose market is going to dry up in the next couple decades, right? Like, I would expect a pipeline company to be dumb enough to try to build a project to extract the last bit of oil out of um, the tar sands before the market dries up entirely as the world transitions to smarter, better sources of energy. Um, but the Canadian government doing that or investing our pension dollars in it, um, it's risky. It is a bad long-term economic bet, and we should be expecting better. It's reckless. It's absurd. It's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. How many adjectives can we come up with? I, you know, I just want to say, if, if you haven't heard, governments around the world are uh, divesting and making choices to either get out of high-risk uh, fossil fuel projects, and you know, there's really no project riskier than the Alberta tar sands when it comes to, to carbon risk and climate risk. Uh, big banks, HSBC is among them, uh, started saying they're no longer going to invest in these businesses because they're too risky. Shell? Shell. Shell is moving out of oil sands. They're like, that oil is especially dirty and expensive. We should not. And just two weeks ago, members of parliament in the United Kingdom out of the committee uh, are saying that they need their public pensions to go through climate stress testing and get evaluated uh, for climate risk. I mean, this is something that Trudeau used to talk about before he bought a pipeline. You don't hear them talk much about climate risk anymore and carbon stress testing. Um, but if, if our pension uh, moves down this pathway, it's worth asking, like, 
why, what data are they looking at that's so different than all of these other global pension funds? Because they're making a radically, radically divergent choice. Thank you. Um, Jen and Russell want to know, and a lot of people actually in the Facebook live chat, thank you for asking your questions. They want to know, what is the relationship between foreign investment and the government approving this pipeline uh, for fear of being sued? Mm, yes, we're hearing this a lot. I think it's a good question. I also think it's one that we should ask our elected officials. Um, and that's this point that maybe um, it seems so absurd that the government would invest, would spend four and a half billion taxpayer dollars on a old pipeline and hand it to Texas oil executives. Folks are looking for reasons. One of the reasons that a lot of people have brought up is maybe they were afraid of being sued under trade deals, whether those are trade deals with the U.S., um, the FIPA deal with China. Um, and I think the problem with these trade deals is that so many of them are secret, like the FIPA, that it's hard to tell. Um, and so that's what we have to keep asking our governments these questions about why, um, why they're getting us into deals in the first place that make it hard to protect local health and safety or environment. Um, but yeah, I think Trudeau got himself into this mess and we don't know the answer to that question. I too, as a Canadian voter, find that frustrating. Okay, moving on. Um, Chris wants to know, how does the Trans Mountain expansion impact Canada's international promises under the Paris Accord? Don't we all? Um, great question, Chris. Um, the way I think this one through is in three parts. First, um, our near-term targets that we have filed under the Paris Climate Agreement. Can we meet them with projects like this? The answer is no. We have no plan. The Trudeau government has no plan to meet the targets that Stephen Harper laid out by 2030. And they've admitted to, in filings to the UN that expansion of the oil sands is one of the major reasons they cannot meet these targets right now. Um, so near term, it, we are not able to meet our near term promises. Long term, if Canada's serious about meeting the goals laid out in the Paris climate, tar climate accord, uh, the real hard part is not the next 15 years, it's the couple decades that come after that. And that's the like, steeper decline where we like really scale up this amazing clean energy industry that's going to put so many folks to work um, and phase out the industries that are causing destruction around the world. Um, so does it get us on track to a plan that will, you know, freeze and eventually meet climate science-based targets? No. The third point, um, which I think is a really interesting one that we talk about even less, and that is, um, is the like, economics of this project consistent with a world that meets the Paris climate targets? Um, and again, of a big pipeline company, I might expect that they'd be making an economic bet on the failure of the Paris climate agreement. But the truth of the matter is, if the world you know, tackles climate change in any meaningful way, in any half meaningful way, demand for Canada's oil sands is going to start to decline. And that means there is no market for expansion projects like this one. So to see Trudeau, who went to Paris in 2015 and said Canada is back, to see Catherine McKenna, who, you know, I was a youth delegate at the Paris Climate Talks. Catherine McKenna looked me in the eye and she told me she would be different than other Canadian governments. They actually were going to do right by my generation. Um, and to see them, who went and committed to real action on climate change, buying with our tax dollars expansion project that is an economic bet on global climate action failing, to me it really shows just how hollow their words are and that when they say they want the world to tackle climate change, do they really mean it if these are the type of economic bets they're making? Hard to say. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, the language about bets is perfect because mm -hmm. the government is essentially gambling and both scenarios are really reckless, mm -hmm. really reckless. Um, Thomas Homer Dixon had a great article uh, with a grad student in the Global Mail last week. People were sharing it around, which, which covered the, the sort of two bets in a really clearly written way that we either succeed at uh, having a, a pipe, or we either get a pipeline that's productive and is moving product, and that means that the world is in absolute chaos, right? Like the win scenario here implies climate chaos. And a scenario where we actually succeed and, and move forward on uh, climate action is a scenario where Canadians have spent $20 billion on a white elephant. Mm -hmm. So in either case, we're going to be spending billions of dollars because if we fail to act and the pipeline works, well, you know, climate change causes, is going to cause trillions and trillions of dollars um, in economic damage, not to mention the, the absolute human catastrophe uh, that will accompany a warmer world. There is no winning scenario if we move forward with building a pipeline. There is no success case. 
Well, we probably should move forward to building the pipeline and tanker expansion project. <laughs> Don't you all agree? Um, Chris wants to, or sorry, that was Chris, but David wants to ask, does the buyout of the Kinder Morgan um, pipeline, or now the Trans Mountain pipeline, require parliamentary approval? Yeah, it seems really undemocratic, doesn't it? This whole process, I mean, we follow this issue really closely. We're sort of floored by the press conference when it happened. There was the dripping out of like preparing the Canadian public for this with Rachel Notley floating the idea of buying it. And then uh, Bill Morneau started secret negotiations with banks and Kinder Morgan in New York City. All of this happening in secret. Um, ministers refusing to answer questions. Uh, it was really... Um, it was really unfortunate to, to see that secrecy around it. And that's part of why we actually don't know much about what's next. We know that we're going to get a crown corporation out of this. We're going to get Export Development Canada is going to build some entity uh, that is going to manage and coordinate uh, this project moving forward. Uh, they've hired someone from Enbridge, um, you know, acclaimed, accomplished pipeline builder Enbridge, uh, Kalamazoo fame and others. I mean, this is not a... Uh, someone we should necessarily be relying on. But yes, Parliament will need to be involved with that enabling legislation. That's an opportunity for us to speak up. But so much of the rest of this seems like it is not going to involve ordinary people. It is not going to involve Canada's democracy. This is a, this reeks of uh, state capitalism and corporatism. It's the sort of conduct I'd expect from Russia or Venezuela, not from Canada. Um, and so, no, I actually don't think we're going to, to see a lot of involvement from parliamentarians here. And it doesn't seem like we're going to see Liberal MPs speaking up very much about this either. So uh, I think it really is up to ordinary citizens um, uh, to demand our parliamentarians make this an issue in the House um, and that it yeah, continues to, to dominate the cycle because this is one of the biggest developments in Canadian history. Thank you. Um, so Paul asks, Hi guys, I recently heard a CBC reporter mention that there would be a Dilbert tanker to tanker transfer off the BC coast. I hadn't heard that this was going to be the case before. Was this reviewed by the NEB? This is bad news for the Salish Sea, if so. Yes, I mean, I, I haven't heard that. That does sound horrifying, I haven't heard it. Can you put the link in the comments? I'd love to read more about that. That sounds dangerous. I can see it perhaps like a smaller ship that then would load into a larger ship. Because mm -hmm. I know one of the one of the challenges in the business case is actually getting the, the, the uh, takers full enough to make it viable to cross the Pacific to to um, China and South Korea, which is part of why they're going more to California than uh, mm -hmm. to Asia. It's just the economics of moving the tankers. So I'm not surprised to hear that people are like rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic to try and find a way to make this... Uh, project work, I mean, we've heard all sorts of um, kind of extraordinary ideas, uh, new technologies, um, but you know what? Like, we just, we don't have time. Like, if, if, even if these are good ideas, um, we really don't have time to develop them. But I, I'd love to hear more about, about this tanker-to-tanker -tanker transfer, because it does. It certainly sounds risky. Hmm. Yeah, really interesting. Um, Olive wants to know, is it true that there are lands affected by the proposed expansion on which Indigenous people live that aren't treaty lands? And does this mean that the government um, doesn't need Indigenous uh, consent in order to build the pipeline? Uh, that's a great question, Olive. Yeah, actually here in BC, most of the lands have no treaties governing them. Um, so that's what we talk about when we say, um, like, unceded, unsurrendered territory. Um, there are no treaties. You know, you have other parts in Canada where there are treaties. First Nations have rights laid out in those treaties. Frequently they aren't respected. Um, but here there are no treaties and that's part of um, what we're going to see um, being ruled on in the court cases soon, maybe in appeals, and that's First Nations who have not granted consent to have, you know, all First Nations in Canada under the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples have a right to free, prior, and informed consent over developments in their territory. Um, a lot of them haven't given that consent. Um, they're talking about that in the courts, and that's something, you know, this is the international standard that uh, for Indigenous rights. One of the things um, I think we as citizens can do is hold our own governments accountable, our colonial governments, the DC government, the Canadian government, uh, accountable to those same standards. Thank you. Um, next question. Um, Seth wants to know, why doesn't the BC Oil and Gas Commission ever come up in discussion? Good question, Seth. Um, you have thoughts on the BC Oil and Gas Commission? 
Oil and Gas Commission. Go for it. Um, yeah, they're a regulator. They're the ones giving Kinder Morgan provincial permits. Um, as we go, I think um, I would have loved to see all of our provincial regulators take a stronger stand, say when um, I'm sure folks saw um, last summer, Kinder Morgan illegally installed nets into BC riverbeds with no provincial or federal authorization to do so. They were trying to stop fish from spawning. You know, if any regular citizen did such a thing, I can't imagine they would have gotten away with it. But this Texas pipeline company walked away with literally not fine um, for doing that um, under either provincial or federal law. Um, so yeah, I think there's a lot of work we'll have to do to continue to hold our regulators accountable. Uh, definitely includes the National Energy Board federally and also the BC Oil and Gas Commission right here at home. Yeah. All right, moving right along. Uh, Lenny wants to know, should the pipeline become a crown corporation and will the military then have the ability to step in um, in the case of protesters? Well, the planet, they, are, they do need a body to manage the process. Mm -hmm. So on July 22nd, and you can just chime in if I'm, mm -hmm. on July 22nd, there's gonna be an operational handover from uh, Kinder Morgan to the government of Canada in and around July 22nd. So at that point, government, as I understand, is going to need something to absorb it. At first, it might be Export Development Canada. Um, is that right? I think we're all still waiting to see how they're going to structure yeah. the federal government now entering the pipeline business. Yeah. This is sort of uncharted and bizarre territory for Canada um, in this moment, right? Like, I mean, I'm, I grew up in the age of, of privatization. Uh, the idea, like, right, right, I grew up in Alberta um, under Ralph Klein. So the hospital I was born in was destroyed and uh, everything else. So this turn now to... Um, socializing pipeline companies is is new for new for this generation yeah uh but to lenny to the part of your point about um bringing in the army i think that would of course i'm sure everyone here agrees with me that would be fundamentally unacceptable um we saw jim carr make a quip about that um i think it was a little over a year now um he since apologized for that quip um but we have seen mps like kenny stewart regularly asking the liberals in federal parliament whether they will commit to not send in the army on peaceful protesters um I think that's something we all need to keep asking. Um, it's a nightmare scenario, um, but I think like it would be so beyond unacceptable. You know, we're all going to have friends out there um, making sure that that mm. absolutely cannot happen in a democracy. And I just want to, yeah, I want to acknowledge as well that um, you know we don't have to wait to see violence and aggressive state responses against people who are acting up about this. Um, especially indigenous people in this country face uh, a lot of police repression uh, around uh, standing up for their land and water. You think about what was going on in New Brunswick uh, just a few years ago, Elsie uh, Pogtog, the uh, culture in, or the history in this country of militarized responses to um, environmental defenders is not one that I'm proud of. Uh, and so I hope that even with uh, a, a nationalized pipeline company moving forward, um, that they um, respect uh, respect people's right to protest and demonstrate, especially especially on the unceded land here in British Columbia. Thanks. Um, Pam wants to know, so many provincial governments are opposed to carbon pricing. For example, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, now Ontario, and next year likely Alberta. How can the Trudeau government enforce carbon pricing when so many provincial governments are now opposed? Mm. You want to start that off? Sure. Yeah. I'll start it off and say, okay, I think you 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 did your master's on carbon pricing, or what did you I, do? I wrote an undergrad. Undergrad. Okay. On it. <laughs> okay. You'll fill out the details. I want to say like a carbon tax. It, you know, isn't a golden arrow, right? Like it's not the thing that's going to solve all of our problems. And I think one of the one of the issues I have with the carbon tax conversation in Canada right now is it seems to be like, oh, well, we're doing this, or we're talking about this, and that's enough. Uh, I, I think it's not enough. I think even if we had a, uh, well, for instance, BC has a carbon tax, and we're not going to meet our legislative climate targets. So it is obviously not enough to get to where we need to on the climate commitments. And for those people who oppose it, uh, people like Jason Kenney or, or Doug Ford or um, Brad Wall, well, former Premier Brad Wall, um, what are you going to do, right? Like, I think the question needs to go back to them rather than to, to us or, or to people who are um, moving forward with, uh, with the carbon tax. If you don't want to tax carbon, what are you going to do instead? 
And I'm not hearing any ideas from these people uh, that are in any way credible or worthy of, um, <laughs> of actually being implemented. Yeah, um, all great points. I think the only things I'd add is that, you know, the existing federal, like federal government's proposal is that if a province doesn't want to um, implement a carbon tax, the federal government will implement a carbon tax and return those revenues. Um, so I think that's will be an ongoing question for us going forward. So far, we have not seen the federal government particularly willing to stand up to uh, provincial governments that um, want to expand their oil sector and would find more climate policies make it hard to do so. Um, right? We've seen them very interested in um, crushing the BC government's efforts to do more science about oil spills, uh, but so far have not been doing a lot of like really backing up, um, standing up to. Um, provincial governments that don't want to take climate change seriously. So I think it'll be interesting to see where they go with that going forward. Yeah. I think too, it's been really, quite frankly, uh, offensive to see pipeline proponents like Rachel Notley um, or people in the PMO or supporters of the Liberal Party describe uh, climate or use the, the carbon tax or climate action as a threat uh, in this, like the Ocean Protection Plan as a threat. You know, if you don't build the Trans Mountain Pipeline, we're going to cancel the Ocean Protection Plan. If you don't build the Trans Mountain Pipeline, Alberta's going to cancel its climate actions. Like, if you actually believe this is a good thing to do, you should do it whether the pipeline is built or not. And that Alberta and Ottawa have started playing around with climate action, with, you know, the, the, the well-being and survival of the human species and cities and towns around the world so that they can get a pipeline built is, is actually really disgusting. Um, and so I hope that that is over now, uh, and then we all agree whether this pipeline is built or not, hopefully it's not, every province has an obligation to act on climate and reduce their emissions uh, much more urgently than they are. Thank you, Pam. That was a great question. That was a good question. Yeah. Uh, Heather asks, I just heard Kinder Morgan leaders got a $1.4 million raise increase slash bonus. Um, not sure which... If there is any truth to this, um, possibly paid out by Trudeau. Um, yeah, I'll let Lisa, our producer behind there, stick a link in the questions. But yes, um, that was, you know, we saw this deal announced that Canadian taxpayers were handing these Texas pipeline executives $4.5 billion. And just days later, the news came out that um, executives like Ian Anderson are taking home bonuses. Um, so really, it's one of our lines here has been like the reverse Robin Hood, stealing from the poor and giving to the rich. Like this is a like taxpayers bailing out, buying out very, very wealthy oil men, right? Like Rich Kinder, I think he still is, was for a very long time the richest man in Houston. We are talking millionaires and billionaires um, that have run this company that have gotten, you know, quite affluent, you know, have been executives at Enron and then jumped over to Kinder Morgan. Um, and so now we are seeing a variety of Kinder Morgan executives, yes, taking home bonuses, uh, presumably as part of the company being very happy with how well they've cashed out in this deal. Makes me very angry, as I'm sure it does many folks listening to this. Yeah, yeah it's pretty vile. I'm, I'm, uh, part of why I do this is the human side of it. Like this work is, is really important to me as someone from Alberta. There's a lot of people who are, are struggling with the economic transition. Um, I think we need to do a lot more in our society to provide people with good work and good pay um, in building a clean energy economy and building good schools and hospitals and all the other things that we could be doing and spending, instead of spending $20 billion on a pipeline. But I think this points to a bigger problem in our society, which is about how power works. Why was it so easy for Steve Keen and Rich Kinder to get into Justin Trudeau's office? And why is it so hard for ordinary people to be heard by the news media, to be heard by their elected officials. This is a deep problem in our society with oligarchy, with uh, wealth inequality, with uh, it, you know, unequal access to political power. So part of what we do is try and balance that out. We're never going to have as much money as rich kinder. Uh, we're never going to, I'm never going to get a $1.5 million bonus from Dogwood, I'll tell you that. <laughs> um, but what I can do is bring a lot of people into you know, MP offices and help inform and educate people so that they're able to do it. And, uh, you know, we need, we need money too, but we're never going to be able to compete on money. So, um, you know, power is something that we need to confront with our relationships. It's something that we need to confront with our integrity um, and use uh, weapons that, frankly, I think are, are more resilient uh, and uh, can be stronger than, you know, just a bunch of cash with a bunch of losers. Um. 
that's a great segue to our next question from Sarul and Steve. They're very similar, so we've put them together. Um, and that is, how can we increase action against the pipeline from coast to coast? And what opportunities are coming up soon so people can join and show their strength? Thank you, guys. Um, I'll kick it off with just um, reflecting on that day of action we had. Gosh, was it just last Monday? Um, organized by Lead Now and so many other groups that came together. I remember as someone who's been working on this um, from out here in Vancouver since I was 17 years old, it's a lot of years, um, how blown away I was by the number of people showing up in Winnipeg and Toronto and Halifax um, and how much it mattered um, to me personally as someone doing this work and just so many other British Columbians to see that support, but also how much I'm sure it mattered to the federal government to know that the political consequences are not just isolated to a handful of BC ridings, right? Like that's that's how they think they're getting away with this deal. It's like maybe a couple of BC ridings the Liberals will lose, but no big national political fallout. And I think what this buyout deal has done is made this personal for a lot more Canadians who were, you know, theoretically maybe supportive of the anti-tanker expansion movement, but hadn't gotten involved, and suddenly it's their tax dollars. Um, so Dogwood just works in BC, which means I don't feel perfectly situated to answer your question, but I guess I just wanted to start off with saying um, we really appreciate the support from the rest of the country. I think it's making a big difference in helping us take this national um, and helping us be more powerful together and fighting back. Yeah. That's wonderful. I mean, I was uh, at Terry Beach's office on the National Day of Action. It was so powerful. And it was great because as we're at the event and there's hundreds of people around, to be able to, to just hop on my phone and see what was going on around the country, it was really powerful. Um, I think there's a lot of effort being done to sort of divide Canadians right now. And this was a great sign that in Calgary and Saskatoon and Ottawa and Montreal, uh, people see the, the horror of doubling down on the fossil fuel economy with public money, um, and they're standing up against it. And although we're not like, so yes, Dogwood just works in, in BC. We're really uh, grateful that there's groups like Lead Now and Council of Canadians and uh, some of us and other groups that help organize uh, and really lead this work across Canada. Um, we're going to hopefully see a lot more of that as time goes on. I don't think this is going away. I think more Canadians are going to learn about this issue. And the thing that um, is really powerful about sort of organizing work is, is civil society is getting involved, right? It's not just, um, you know, people who live on Burnaby Mountain or people who live on the pipeline route. Uh, physicians are organizing. Canadian Association of Physicians for the Environment, right? engineers who are organizing, different uh, public sector groups are speaking up about this. Um, so if you haven't, if you have a church you go to, or if you're part of a, a trade union, or you're uh, on a pension board, these are all ways that you can uh, contribute to this uh, wherever you happen to live across Canada. And I'll also just super quickly plug, um, if you haven't written to your MP yet, that's a really simple, really powerful thing you can do no matter what party your MP is from. Um, I'll let Lisa stick the link in the comments, but it's www.stopthebailout.ca. Um, and you can write your MP a letter right after you get off this call if you haven't done so. Thank you, guys. Um, so many questions. Thank you, guys, out there on the live who stuck with us through time and space and internet kafuffles, if that's a word. I don't know. I think so. Um, yeah, um, I want to ask one more question before we sign off. And um, I'm wondering. Both you guys at home are uh, wherever you are on the live stream and you people here with me today. What gives you hope? You know, I'm going to go back to that day of action. And it, it's pretty much any time I'm with a crowd of people, um, whether it was at the Protect the Inlet event uh, on March 10th at Burnaby Mountain, which was just incredible uh, to be there, or on uh, May 29th when the pipeline uh, bio was announced and uh, Hundreds of people gathered at Science World here in Vancouver uh, just to express their, their absolute outrage, outrage with the, the federal government. That gives me hope. Being in a crowded space with my neighbors, uh, fellow citizens, people who aren't citizens yet, residents who just care about what's going on in this country because they live here. Um, I feel really, really uh, lucky to be in a country where that happens. And that's what gives me hope. The people are still showing up. This seems so daunting. It seems so challenging. But people still have faith in each other. And they still have faith in democracy. Um, and uh, I don't mean like just the election system. The democracy that happens at those spaces in between each other, those conversations. So I've got a lot of hope. Um, and there's going to be a lot more events like that. And um, 
it'll just keep me keep me going. Um, yeah, that resonates a lot with me too. I think what I'll add um, is I tell when I first started doing this work, um, I was in high school, um, and when I first it was a summer intern at Dogwood. Um, a couple years later, and I had my petition that was mostly focused around Enbridge at the time, actually. And at the time, the number one reason that no one would sign my petition was because um, maybe they didn't want oil tanker expansion up there on the North Coast, but they said, these companies always get their way. Um, it'll happen regardless. Um, and I think on, I thought on that a lot when we finally beat Enbridge, and that happened in a lot of small steps. Uh, but they always said it couldn't be done until like all of a sudden it was obvious that we were winning. Um, and I think there'll be a lot of those moments on Kinder Morgan. Um, and of course, no one knows for sure what can happen. Um, but just like that, that victory reminds me of just the incredible magic that happens when folks come together. Um, and, you know, even if you're up against the federal government and one of the richest, most powerful industries in the world, um, you had such incredible indigenous leadership and a whole lot of non-indigenous folks that all came together to protect a really special place. Um, and I feel that here, you know, I grew up swimming and playing in the Salish Sea. I think of um, the Coast Salish nations here that have defended and stewarded that land for so many centuries and millennia um, and how, yeah, I think if enough of us come together again, you know, we've seen before that really amazing things can happen. So thank you all for being in this movement with us. I think that collective strength gives me hope. Great. Yeah. Um, any actions that we want to point people to at all? Yeah, well, I see Lisa's shared some great links. Um, we've got events on our page that you can go and check out, dogwoodbc.ca. Um, we have regular events that we're posting and getting up there. But there's some quick things for you to do online today if you haven't yet. Uh, there's a petition to sign uh, opposing the use of, of uh, taxpayer money, public money, to uh, bail out Kinder Morgan. You can call Morneau. Uh, this is an easy way. It's a click-to-call tool. You do it right from your, your home phone and your computer. Uh, and the last thing is, I hope you sign up to volunteer with local teams. It's really easy to do stuff online, but some of the big differences you can make are when you gather with your friends and neighbors in real spaces, you meet them face-to-face, -face, um, and you're able to, to go and have those live, uh, real-time conversations with people. Uh, so, yeah, try and uh, join a team. If you live in a place that doesn't have a team, uh, you know, work remotely and, uh, and help get one set up and, and grow, the, grow the folks working on this across BC. Well, with that, thank you so much, everybody. Thank you, thank Mike. You so much. Thank you, Sophie. Thank, thank you, all. Lisa, over there. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Bye. For those of you who have made it to the end, thanks for sticking with us. If we didn't get to your question in this Q&A, send us a message and we'll try to answer it for you. You can send us an email at dogwood at dogwoodbc.ca or a Facebook message on our page, Dogwood BC. If you want to take action or get involved, you can find all the links Sophie and Mike mentioned in the show notes for this episode, so please check those out. If you liked this episode, remember, sharing is caring, so please pass it on to your friends, or even better, leave us a rating on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you're listening to this from. And if you want to reach out and give us feedback, good or bad, we're always willing to hear it. Talk to us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at DogwoodBC is our name for all of those platforms. Thanks again for joining us for this very special episode. I hope you had as much fun listening as we did making it. I will talk to you next month from our shiny new office in Vancouver. Until then, thanks for tuning in.